You're listening to Tulsa Talks, a Tulsa People podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Anna Bennett. Today's episode is brought to you by Restaurant Week, which is September 7th through the 16th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I know you're hungry for all things gathering place, so today we're sitting down with the culinary executive chef, Kirk Swaby. Then later on, Morgan Phillips has a what the what segment to die for. So let's talk Tulsa. Morgan Phillips, Tulsa Talks. I'll take Local it. Local music. This is Ann Brockman. Weekend Report. Anna Bennett. <laughs> yeah, imagine. Tulsa Talks. Stick around. Food is life. And I don't like life being dark and moody. It is. But let's look on the positive side of life, which is the brightness, the, uh, the boldness, the beauty in it. And that's how I want to translate food. That was the voice of Chef Kirk Swaby, who's got a very particular role at the gathering place. Culinary executive chef, to be exact. The highly anticipated gathering place is finally opening to the public on September 8th. And if you follow Tulsa People magazine, you've seen our coverage over the past several years on everything from the Adventure Playground to the major donors to the various trees and plants. In fact, you can find all of this coverage at tulsapeople.com slash gatheringplace. But in addition to all the park programming and the various attractions we've heard so much about, there are also going to be a plethora of dining options for guests. Everything from a $5 grab-and-go to a white tablecloth dining experience. And as the official culinary executive chef, Kirk Swaby is the man behind it all. And Chef Swaby brings to the table a vast and unique experience— A recent transplant from the city of Chicago, Chef Swaby was actually born in Jamaica and then got his culinary training at Le Cordon Bleu College of Culinary Arts, as well as Canada's highly respected George Brown Culinary School. He then perfected his unique style of cooking at Mange Levy, which is a private boutique catering company in Chicago. But he isn't just about haute cuisine. He's also about making interesting and healthy food exciting and also accessible. And his recipe for success at the gathering place pulls heavily from his cookbook as a fusion cuisine master, bringing in various disparate elements to create something new. But what exactly does being executive chef of a major park entail? So my responsibilities primarily focus on menu design within the park and ensuring that we have a very diverse culinary experience for Tulsa, Tulsa natives to come and experience at the park itself. So how many different menus do you have to work on developing? There's, I understand that there's like a little gelato cafe and there's going to be um, like a white tablecloth restaurant as well as a grab and go. Like how many different um, areas do you, do you have to plan for? Technically speaking, there's approximately five different menu designs that we're going to be uh, executing within the park. We have our three restaurants, food truck, and food carts, and each one is very diverse and different and brings some uh, new experience uh, with everyone that you go to. Okay. Is there one of those outlets that you're particularly excited about designing the menu for? Right now, I'm definitely excited about the patio menu. Reason being, the patio menu is for the common man, to say the least. But what I was really excited about is showcasing that we can still have or fan favorites, you know, the classic American cheeseburger, but a healthier version of it. And what we're also doing with that, we're trying to source source as local as possible. So with our burger bun, it actually comes directly from Tulsa. 
Nice. Uh, what uh, local bakery are you using? Or are you uh, making those in house? We're actually using Pancho and Naya. Oh, so yes, yes. <laughs> that's a personal favorite of mine. Right, clearly, on. that's fantastic. And then, what do you do to make classics such as the American cheeseburger uh, still delicious, still craveable, but a little bit healthier? So healthier, we're going with minimal additives within the actual burger bun. So I'm sure a lot of us, we've gone to the grocery store and we've looked at that list, that ingredient list on the back and we're like, oh my gosh, I can't pronounce any Mm -hmm. of this stuff. So we're trying to remove all of that, keep it as clean as possible. It's still extremely tasty. And then within the products that we're using, so from the lettuce, the tomato, trying to go as non-GMO as possible, and even the burger patties, they're Angus beef and not frozen. Have you visited the park yet? I would I would assume you've been on site. The park is now my life. So yes, I've yeah, been yeah. in the park. <laughs> okay, so you've been there is an understatement. Yes. So the the first time you visited, I guess I guess when would that have been? Like where was the park in its process the first time you actually visited? The very first time I got a view of the park was last year, I believe sometime in uh October. Mm-hmm. It was the very first time I saw the park and it was still under quite a bit of construction. But even at that stage, I was still blown away, for one, just at the scale that at the park is. Uh, first phase is approximately 70 acres, and everything that's crammed into that one space, the different restaurants from the um, theming, the nature aspects, it's just absolutely mind-blowing the very first time I saw it. Yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, from, from being a Tulsa native and finally getting to getting to see it, it's absolutely unrecognizable. It's like, where am I? And like you said, like 70 acres is really not that not that huge in the big scheme of things. And yet yes. there's so much going on. So how did you get how did you get pitched this position? And um, to be honest, did you have any misgivings about going from working in very high end restaurants to working at a park? Well, to come to this park, the um, pitch, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. That was given, it falls into my core values, which was giving back to the general population. And that is something that we've always done. Even back in Chicago, what we'd always do if we had leftover food, we'd always want to donate that to the homeless or help persons out um, in um, less fortunate persons. And with the mission that the park has with encompassing such a wide demographic of persons, but also wanting to create jobs and just have a real cultural impact on Tulsa and not just make it a flyover state anymore. This is now a destination spot. Um, I was just like, why would I not want to be here? That's amazing. Well, we're glad that we're glad that you we brought you here. Yeah, I understand you've got you've got a pretty impressive culinary pedigree. You studied at um, Le Cordon Bleu, is that right? Yes, I studied at Le Cordon Bleu. Uh, that was the last place I studied at, and then before that was at uh, George Brown College, which is in Toronto, Canada. Wow! So you've got your French experience, and then before that. Um, the Canadian experience, which I guess probably has some French influences as well. What do you think going to those two different institutes of learning helped bring to your cooking? I would definitely say going to both institutions, it helped create a a solid foundation. Uh, So in the culinary world, there's a saying that there's not saying, sorry, there is a seven cuisines, seven styles of cooking. And with those seven styles of cooking, you literally can cook almost any dish across the the globe. 
Interesting. So having that um, pedigree, that knowledge, allows me to tap into what I consider fusion cuisine, true fusion cuisine, which is the merger of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, bringing those flavor combinations and just creating something absolutely mind-blowing that you just don't get on a regular basis. In your studies, have you come across any um, of those similarities across different cultural cuisines that still had those those central tenets uh, in common that maybe surprised you? Yeah, you know what? The first one that got me, I would say, probably would be Asian and Latin American. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you know, we talk about um, cilantro used in both areas, limes used in both areas, chilies used in both areas. Hmm. And you just see how these slight tweaks, adding maybe a little bit of vinegar here, a little bit of miso there, adding a little bit more spice, it changes the dynamic of the flavors actually coming together and just an absolutely different experience dish-wise. Hmm. That is so interesting. I hadn't thought about, yeah, like those common ingredients. Mm-hmm. And yet you th- when you imagine the flavor of, you know, a chili in Asian cuisine versus a chili in South American cuisine, it's a totally, it's a totally different thing. And right. I know that there's a place in town, I want to say it's... Um, it's the Peruvian restaurant, Pauchek Peruvian. I'm probably butchering that. But it's like Chinese and Peruvian oh, right fusion, which apparently there's some shared history with Chinese immigrants in Peru. So I I love kind of seeing where cultures intersect mm-hmm. over over a dinner plate, which to me that sounds like it's very common with the um, with the whole point of the gathering place of bringing people together. For sure. And food certainly has the power to do that. So do you, do you think that that is part of your mission? Definitely. Food is one of those catalysts that people always gather around. Mm-hmm. Um, I always made the analogy that there's so many of us that go to gatherings, whether it be Thanksgiving or Christmas or anything like that. And if that, you know, one aunt or grandma doesn't bring that one cobbler or that specific dish, it just doesn't make it as memorable as it was last year. Yeah, it just doesn't taste like Christmas. Exactly. So with the gathering place, what we want to do is not just have food for people to come and eat and get full, but to come and have that experience, just like Sunday evening dinner. You know, there was always that back in the days, everybody would have gathered around a table, Sunday dinner. There was no cell phones back then. Mm -hmm. And we just enjoy each other's company and experience. And that's really what we want to do at the gathering place, a place to just disconnect and engage with one another again. Interesting. So as you're designing these menus, you talked a little bit about how you're planning to make these classic American staples a little more sustainable and more healthful. What are some ways that you're planning to balance your desire to create experimental, um, interesting and unexpected dishes versus the desire to please a large amount of people? Okay, so one dish that we have, um, which I'm actually really proud of, and I'm hoping that Tulsa takes hold of it, which is what I call a Tulsa dog. So when I came here, I saw, you know, we have the Coney Island dog, then there's a Jersey dog. I'm like, why does Tulsa not have its own hot dog? So with myself and my sous chefs, we came together and said, all right, here's what we can put together, which are Tulsa staples, and everyone would recognize, but it's completely different from anywhere else. So our bur- or hot dog, sorry, it consists of a hot dog bun which is oklahoma made in oklahoma then we have a kosher hot dog which as you know we have a very large jewish population here then we went ahead so we said all right you know what? we don't want to use ketchup we don't want to use mustard what can we substitute that with we have a very large uh, hispanic community mole 
that goes with almost everything. Oh, my gosh. So we have mole as our quote-unquote ketchup. And then we want to take a step further. Um, I have a very close relationship now with the executive chef at the food bank, Jeff Marlowe. Mm-hmm. And he introduced me to Chow Chow. And I was like, what in the world is Chow Chow? It just sounds so obscure. And what it actually is, it's um, almost like a relish. So it's a cabbage relish. And we took that. And as you know, a ranch is a staple in Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Smash those two together. So we have a Chow Chow Ranch, which is our mustard that goes over top. Oh, man. So I think that it should catch on. It's interesting. Is the Chow Chow almost like, I mean, it's not fermented, but it's kind of like kimchi? No, it actually has a sweet and spicy uh, taste to it. Oh, man. That and the mole sauce. That sounds so interesting. Yeah. So, you know, taking an American staple like the hot dog, everyone knows what a hot dog is. And being able to bring in the cultural influences of the mole, the ranch, the chow chow, putting those together so people can say, oh, you know what? I know what that is. I'm willing to give it a try, even though I haven't had this combination. Right. So you have those elements in there that are still recognizable and accessible. Is any is any part of you uh, feel torn about creating a new hot dog being from Chicago? I know that. Y'all yeah. could be pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty intense about your hot dogs. Yeah, we were pretty intense about our hot dogs in <laughs> Chicago, you know. Uh, but it was definitely, for me, coming to Tulsa, I now consider myself a Tulsan, so I wanted to do something for Tulsa. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be like a Chicago dog. It, as you can tell, it's nothing close to a Chicago dog. It just wanted something for Tulsa as I'm trying to embrace Tulsa as well. Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome to Tulsa. Thank you. Um have you at this is side note but i'm obsessed with the molly sauce at um calaveras and kindle whittier have you have you been there i have not been but i'll put that on my yeah, list they they make fantastic enmeladas that's that's one of my favorite things right there on. yeah so i think going kind of hand in hand with the the accessibility factor is this part caters so much to children who can be um picky how how do you get picky eaters to to like food that maybe they've never seen before. Right. So with that, we have just a basic hot dog as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's going to be those persons that want absolutely nothing, touching their food, mm-hmm. keeping their food separate, that kind of thing. We are going to have those classics which just never change. Hot dog, ketchup, mustard, leave it alone. It's beautiful as it is. Mm-hmm. Then we have our additions that persons can choose from if they want to be a little bit experimental. I know for myself, my daughter, she loves trying new things. So my daughter, per se, she would definitely want to try a Tulsa dog. Mm-hmm. But I have other friends who have children. They might, you know what, I just want the hot dog and the bun. Don't even put ketchup on it. Mm-hmm. And then they're good to go. Okay, so that's so you'll have those other like more basic options. Definitely. Will, will those ingredients um, still be sourced locally? Like, is there still going to be that level of, of care put into the more basic dishes? In every dish that we do, mm-hmm. there's always going to be love and care because that's how I see food as. Um, before I came to Chicago, or sorry, before I came to Tulsa, sorry, one of my, um, one thing I always tell myself, food is life, and food should be presented as life, and that's just the care and love that I give to my sous chefs, my cooks, that we want to ensure that we're giving the best product possible at all times. Hmm. We'll be right back with the rest of this conversation after a quick word from our sponsors. Tulsa People's 12th Annual Restaurant Week is taking over Tulsa on September 7th through the 16th. This is Ann Brockman. He's reporting in a minute. Yeah, imagine. Tulsa Talks. Stick around. 
Hey Morgan, aren't you so glad that it's restaurant week? I'm so excited. This is basically the tastiest week of the year and a highlight of my fall. Yeah, and we're trying out Palace Cafe today, one of my favorites. So we just ordered the, um, the fried green tomato salad. We're gonna tuck into that. Of course, it arrives at our table and it's beautiful, as always. Um, is that mozzarella Yeah, cheese? it looks like just slices of mozzarella. I mean, hey, I'm just gonna dive right into one of these fried green tomatoes. I've actually never tried a fried green tomato. Really? Me neither. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, bon appetit and happy restaurant week. Yes, happy restaurant week. That's really darn good. That is very yummy. Mm -hmm. Very southern mm -hmm. tasting. Yeah, especially with like the buttermilk dressing. Mm -hmm. And it says um, cornmeal fried. So, oh man, that's probably where that. Yeah, I'm just is coming. Um, so this is the 12th annual restaurant week, which is really crazy. Tulsa people started it 12 years ago. Yeah. And so I can't believe it's been that long. But um, Palace Cafe is one of the longtime participants. Right. In Restaurant Week, and mm -hmm. there's a few others in town who have. Yeah, like Chalkboard's been doing it a long time. Big. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm excited to see what Kitchen 27, um, the which was formerly La Villa, brings to the table because it's mm. also a Schrader restaurant. Mm, I can't wait to um, try that one. And then um, I feel like um, Keo always has a good menu. Yeah. And Juniper always, oh, which they're yeah. always doing oh, yeah. really different things. And I, what I love about Restaurant Week is that you can just try out some new tastes at some place that you may not have ever been before but even if you do go there all the time and you're a regular mm -hmm. you're probably going to find something new yeah on the um, on the restaurant week menu that yeah that they're trying out especially for restaurant week yeah. and of course you know a portion of the proceeds goes to a great cause the community food bank of eastern oklahoma specifically the food for kids program right and um, proceeds are going to be matched up to twenty five thousand dollars by the george kaiser family foundation um, thank just, you, Uncle George. Yeah, thank God for George, <laughs> right? It's like you shouldn't have, you but shouldn't we're glad have, you did. Yeah, we're glad you did. <laughs> All right, our food has arrived. This looks awesome. Mm -hmm. With, okay, yeah, you got the uh, the turkey burger. Yeah, the turkey burger mm -hmm. looks super good, and it's got some like summer asparagus and zucchini and some carrots, and it looks mm -hmm. like it's all been thrown on the grill. Yours looks great oh, too. Oh man, there's like yeah, quite the Reuben. Yeah. It's like got a little kick to it with mm. the turkey burger. I think it's the chipotle aioli, which I believe yours has too. Yeah, it does. It's, it's got like a little spice to it, mm -hmm. but not too much. Yeah, mm. and I think uh, you can you can check out all of the various menus, of which there are 50, I believe. Mm -hmm. 50 restaurants this year at uh, tulsapeople.com slash restaurant week. Yeah, happy eating. Happy eating, indeed. Welcome back to Tulsa Talks. When we left off, we were chatting with Kirk Swaby about the massive culinary endeavors at the Gathering Place. But something this big is hardly a one-man show. So talking about your, your sous chefs and your, your, your culinary crew, I understand that, that is that crew hired uh, locally? All local, okay. yes. Okay. How, how, how's that experience been, sort of assembling your, your team? It's been fun. It's been really fun. And... I think everyone on our culinary team is super excited right now because we have a very diverse culinary team um, by design mm -hmm. because, like we said, we're trying to encompass every demographic within Tulsa food-wise. So why not bring in um, on the workforce every demographic in Tulsa? Because mm -hmm. I can guarantee there's going to be certain things 
I don't personally know. I might lean on my sous chef for I'll be like, hey, do you know how to do this because you're native to this land? Mm-hmm. And obviously, it'd be a more authentic experience as opposed to me trying to muster up something that I think it should taste like. Right. How interesting. And so in that way, I mean, I think the park as a whole seems to be creating a lot of jobs. But within the culinary team, how many people are at this point being employed? Do you have a ballpark number? Approximately, I would say in the realms of between 60 to 80 persons. 60 to 80? Wow. Yes. I mean, it is, I guess it's a it's a huge undertaking. You got to, yeah, a lot of moving parts. A like, lot of moving I can't parts, even yeah. imagine. Do, do you feel like your previous experiences have, have prepared you for this? I know you've got... Am a, a catering experience as well. Yes, uh, the previous experience that I've had working in restaurants, doing catering, private chefing is definitely, I would say, made me more well-rounded for taking on this endeavor. Simply because there's so many different aspects within the park itself. From we will be doing, you know, catering at a later date, not right now, but then also the quick service, um, and then the more finite you know, upscale restaurants, so on and so forth. Bringing that all together is not an easy task, but I definitely think I'm up for the challenge. That's awesome. Yeah, so how do you create a sense of cohesion amid so many different places and different ways for people to gather around food at the park? You know, because you've got your casual options, you've got your snacks, and then you've got your fine dining options. Is there, how are you approaching having all those different styles and offerings while still maintaining um, a cohesive uh, feel well i think the main focus uh, like i said before is to ensure that we're presenting food as an experience not just here's some food stuff your face but that you can actually have an experience be like you know what this burger that i had at the patio at the gathering place blew my mind and i had it with um, my wife and my kids and just remembering that one experience that they had and also with each restaurant our service staff we're going to be bringing that experience that you get nowhere else also. Mm-hmm. So just taking it to that next level. That's fantastic. So what are, do you have the, the names of the restaurants chosen yet? I know there's the one on the, the boat dock that's called. No, that one is called the Vista. So Vista. we have the Vista, mm-hmm. we have the patio, and then we have Red Bud Cafe. Okay. And that's nice that it's state state tree. Yes. Nod to that for sure. So I want to talk about the role that food and cooking has played in your personal life. I've I know that you've been um, influenced by your your grandmother. Could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about her and how she uh, started your love of cooking? So with my grandmother, it's quite funny. You know, everyone on um, my grandmother on my mother's side, everyone knows how to cook. And it was mandatory that you knew how to cook. Uh, She would actually rotate people on days, given days. It would be your day to cook. You're the only one doing it, and you need to learn. So uh, I can say, you can probably say my culinary um, education started at a very young age, um, learning how to cook and bake. That was one of the things within our family that was definitely a staple. And um, with my grandmother, she's very old school with her cooking in the sense that when dinner is served, everyone is at the table. Um, and when we're creating these meals, it's a family affair. I distinctly remember, you know, going back to Sundays. Sundays and Saturdays, um, we would start cooking at nine, ten o'clock in the morning, but it wouldn't just be one dish. There would be baking going on, prepping, and so on and so forth. And it was just the entire family coming together. One person would be in charge of this, the other person would be in charge of that. And then at the end of the night, everything just come together and even with neighbors as well 
And it was just a beautiful experience. Sounds like she sort of had the sort of job that you have now, managing a team, and <laughs> everyone has much. their. <laughs> you much. probably weren't called sous chef, but no. <laughs> it sounds like the same idea. And now she was she's from Jamaica, is Correct. that right? Yes. All right. And so, we're, um, are you? Are, is your whole family from Jamaica? Or are you? Yes. You, have you been? So in entire families um, from Jamaica. I was mm-hmm. born in Jamaica. Actually, okay. lived there for about ten years, and then migrated. Okay. How is that? Has that influenced your your cooking um, or your, um, I guess, your, your take on cooking now? Yes, definitely. Um, with my take on cooking, I would say I lean more towards bold, bright flavors. And that translates back to my motto on food, which is food is life. And I don't like life being dark and moody. It is. But let's look on the positive side of life, which is the brightness, the uh, the boldness, the beauty in it. And that's how I want to translate food. And bringing that back to the gathering place, creating that experience, you want it to be a bright, bold, beautiful experience. Mm-hmm. So it just goes hand in hand. Yeah. I know in previous episodes, um, not episodes, in previous interviews, I've heard you use the phrase bursts of flavor. Yes. Quite a bit. And that seems like it's very in line with that boldness and that brightness rather than the melancholy of life. Yes, definitely. It For me, it just has to be that way. Um, because at the end of the day, as humans, we eat for flavor. And you don't want to eat something that's dull. Mm-hmm. You know, um, going back to the burger at the patio, where what sets us apart is the flavor profiles that are going to hit your tongue. You can get a burger anywhere in the world, but every burger is distinctly different. And what's going to set us apart is that boldness, that brightness, and that clean flavors that come through. Mm. I'm hungry already. <laughs> and so you've, I've also heard you speak in the past about um, cooking as sort of a, a stress relief. Can you talk about that? Like you get in the kitchen and you're, you're not stressed. I am not stressed. It's the happiest wow. place in the world for me, to be honest. <laughs> Despite like all of the things happening and all the noise and all the sounds and smells. It's – it I – Honestly, I really can't explain it, it, but any chef will tell you just being in the kitchen, they'd rather be in the kitchen than anywhere else. And uh, for me, that's where my joy is, and that's why it's not work for me. So being at the gathering place, yes, I quote-unquote have a job, but this is more, I'm just living life. Mm-hmm. Food is life. Food is life, yeah, <laughs> definitely. We'll be back with another helping of this conversation. But first, Morgan dips her toes, or her fingers, I suppose, into the marvelous world of natural plant dyes. And let's just say she's not afraid to get a little messy. Hey there, I'm city editor Morgan Phillips with What the What? I'm a recovering perfectionist. This is really healthy for me. Just be, do it and be fun. That's I'm, all. That's all you have to do. I'm on my period, so my feelings are already hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I love so. it. If you're wondering what on earth is going on here, let me set the stage. I have two words for you. Indigo shibori. What the what, you ask? Indigo shibori is a Japanese dyeing technique that you've probably seen on pillows, bedding, and other textiles sold at places like West Elm or Ikea. Picture a more sophisticated version of tie-dye, a striking cobalt blue on neutral fabric. Indigo is actually a natural plant dye that comes from the indigo plant, and shibori refers to the folding or tying of the fabric before the dye process begins. The word literally means to hide the fabric from the dye. How do I know so much about indigo shibori? I recently learned from the uber-talented Tulsan Natasha Ball of House Sparrow Fine Nesting. 
You might remember Natasha from her popular blog, Tasha Does Tulsa, and her journalism work with Urban Tulsa Weekly, The Tulsa Voice, and This Land. In recent years, she's emerged as an amazing macrame artist. Check out her Retro Den pop-up shop, featuring her beautifully knotted hanging installations. About three years ago, Natasha began experimenting with natural plant dyes to understand more about her family's heritage in Oklahoma and what life might have been like for them in the 1800s. Now she hosts workshops at her home studio to teach others about natural plant dyes. So that's what brought me and six other Tulsans together on a Sunday afternoon in August to talk about perfectionism, our pets, and maybe even some personal topics. Here's Natasha. And we're going to be doing the Indigo Shibori workshop today. And I'm going to give you guys some examples of what we can do and show you all the techniques and the tools and everything to get from up here. And then we're going to go downstairs to the actual dye vat. And that's where we'll be doing all the fun dipping and unfolding. And that's where everyone says it feels like Christmas morning because you're not ever sure what it's going to look like. I can give you a really good idea of what it's going to look like. I can't promise you anything. And that helps me, <laughs> and it helps you. So if you're a perfectionist, then maybe you could just go on home today. And <laughs> perfectionist, not here. <laughs> so um, That piece of advice was my first inkling that I should check my control issues at the door. Next, Natasha showed us beautiful examples of her own indigo shibori pieces, and generally how we might recreate them. And we chose our fabric and got to folding. Okay, so right now I am practicing an accordion fold on the t-shirt that I brought. Um, Natasha has provided fabric for all of us. Um, We can have a yard and a half of her fabric and we can pick from um, cotton, a cotton linen blend, or a... um, Uh, silk. And so I brought um, an additional piece, which she said was optional. And it's just a 100% cotton v-neck t-shirt. And I'm going to try to recreate something she showed us, which is a beautiful accordion style fold. And it kind of gives the striped effect. Um, And so that's kind of what I'm working on right now. And I was trying to play with which way um, the stripes would um, be directed to see what would be the most slimming pattern. And so I'm going to so it turns out the ladies at this workshop were a lot of fun. Several had taken other workshops with Natasha, like Lori Everspa Myers. And oh, hanging yeah. out with other people the and then making something with it. Mm-hmm. So, and I love her stories about the history of it all well, and all that fun stuff. That's funny. Because she just puts it in such like a romantic, historical way that it makes you want to do it. Uh, no, My grandparents are also from oh, Oklahoma wow. and oh, kind of similar for me kind of people. So, so it's nice to it. honor that history with some yeah. crafts. You might call her a serial crafter. Here, Lori is talking me down about not getting my folds just right. I keep telling myself, don't be a perfectionist. Don't. Stop being a perfectionist. Don't. Especially with this, because if you think it's going to be one thing, it will be great, but it might not be exactly what you think. This might be good therapy for me. it is. It's really fun that way. Okay. Because it's a little unexpected. Right. Good. That's what I need. As I was folding, I'm not going to lie, I was feeling a little pressure. It's like Tim Gunn was in my ear saying, just make it work, designers. Designers, time is up. After folding my t-shirt and my silk and securing them with rubber bands, I was ready to take them outside for a little dip in the indigo. 
and that was where the magic happened. Okay, I'm about to go for my second dip here into the vat of the blue indigo dye. So um, I'm sharing the vat with um, Kelly, and so I'm gonna dip it in. And once I've submerged my piece of fabric, then I'm going to wait for about 30 seconds. And then I will squeeze it and I will pull it out and take it immediately to the grass and wring it out. And then it's kind of this fun process of waiting for the dye to oxidize, which just means the oxygen in the air hits it and it turns from kind of a green color to the deep indigo that um, will be kind of the final color. The process was really easy, but of course I did have a bit of an oops. So I overflowed my glove with indigo dye when I was dunking my pieces into the vat of blue dye. So um, I definitely have a blue hand. Um, That was a rookie mistake, but um, that's okay. I've got a um, souvenir I can take home with me in the form of a blue hand. The best part of this whole process was absolutely the unveiling. Natasha rinsed our pieces for us and then cut the bands and we opened them. Okay, now it's time for the moment of truth. And I'm going to cut my rubber bands off of my t-shirt that I dyed. We'll see what it looks like. What do you guys think of my t-shirt? Oh, wow. I'm going to be styling. Yes. I love it. Yeah, cool. So All the pieces had quite the wow factor, but Lori was the Shibori star. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it was going to be great, and it That's is. really cool, yeah. Yeah, it looks really awesome. Oh, yeah. Wow. Like Natasha said, Christmas morning. This workshop was such a great time. You can see my Indigo Shibori creations and other photos from the process on Instagram at whatthewhattulsa. And if you're yearning for some learning, Natasha's fall workshop calendar is open. You can sign up at housesparrownesting.com slash workshops. And House Sparrow Fine Nesting is partnering up with Owl and Drum and Mary Make and Do to offer Witchcraft Weekend November 2nd through the 4th. No, it's not that type of witchcraft. This is a three-day workshop binge with meals and lodging at the beautiful Bluebird Lane in Mounds. Participants will create five all-new modern projects perfect for gift-giving. Crafters of all skill levels are welcome. The registration deadline is September 15th, so be sure to hop on over to owlandrum.com to sign up. Until next time, Tulsa! Well, good luck washing the indigo off of your hands, Morgan. Now let's get back to our conversation with Kirk Swaby. Now, just as food is a metaphor for life, it turns out that Chef Swaby's menus are a great metaphor for the gathering place as a whole. Um, One thing I probably want to touch on is just the fact that we really want this park to be recognized by all of Tulsa as theirs. Mm -hmm. And likewise with the food, translating that back to the food, every single menu, not menu item, but every single menu will have something that someone can relate to. So I I would never want any of my patrons to come and be like, oh, I look at this menu, I recognize absolutely nothing. There should be at least one thing. And if I'm not, if they can come and say, you know, I don't recognize anything on this menu, it means I'm not doing my job. Hmm. So that's the the standard that I hold myself to when it comes to that. 
So something for for everyone to something enjoy. Something for everyone, definitely. And a lot of price points, I understand. Like, there's going to be, like, a $5, like, kind of grab-and-go area, and then... Well, with the price points, we want it to be accessible to all Tulsans. Uh-huh. So we are definitely working with our distributors and uh, local vendors to ensure that we can get the best pricing so that anyone can come to the park, regardless of how much you make on a weekly, yearly basis, come there and actually be able to purchase something Mm -hmm. Um, from a full combo to a small sandwich, anything at all. No one should be able to come to the park and be like, oh, man, this is completely out of my price range. But there should be something for everyone. Okay. Sort of like there's something for every age range and interest within the park itself. Right, right. Okay, so it definitely mirrors the intentions of the park yes. overall. Mm-hmm. Is there anything, or um, you, t- you talked some about the, the Tulsa dog. Are there any other standout dishes that you're particularly excited about? Or or maybe something that you struggled with but have, have found a solution to? Well, you know what? Some of the standout dishes, I kind of don't want to talk about it yet. Okay. The only <laughs> reason, because I would love for people to come and just be like, oh, my goodness, how did they come up with this specific item? But I did want to mention the Tulsa dog because I won't lie to you. That is one of the dishes, as simple as it sounds, that's the dish I'm probably most nervous about because I have no idea how Tulsa is going to respond to it. Well, I will I will personally order one, <laughs> probably more than one. I appreciate so. that. Yeah. Have you been to many restaurants in the Tulsa scene since coming here? Um, not too many as yet. I've just been swamped to work, but yeah. I have been to a few, and I love the scene, the food scene that Tulsa currently has. Definitely plan to go out within the next couple months, weeks, to experience uh, some new restaurants. Been making some really nice connections with local chefs as well, mm-hmm. and so that's just a drive for me to go out and taste yeah. their food as well. And have has the culinary scene been welcoming? Oh, it's to, been to more than welcoming. Fantastic. More than welcoming. Um, I was not ex- expecting this at all. Uh, coming from Chicago, massive, massive city, um, regardless of how good you are, everyone knows everyone there, but it's like no knowing them at the third degree kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, I know so that knows so that knows so. But here in Tulsa, I love the fact that it's a it's a small city, but a big city mentality. But um, every all the chefs here have just been beyond welcoming. Love all of them that I know s- thus far. And the list just keeps growing and growing. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we Tulsans are aggressively friendly sometimes. I love so. it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. I oh, love chatting with you about um, about your work or your play, I guess. It seems like you're, you're, it doesn't feel like work most, most days. That's awesome. Thank you again. Oh, thank you for having me. just heard please leave a rating or review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and hey we are all about sharing with the great people of tulsa so tell a friend about this podcast you can follow us at tulsa people on twitter and instagram or visit our home on the web tulsapeople.com and today we are going to play you out with cp's blues by rachel bachman you can catch Rachel Bachman live at Ms. Fest on September the 15th, too.
I'm working, working. Yeah, I'm working, working. Yeah, I'm working, working. Yeah, I'm Artist and to download this track, visit rachelbachman.com. And to buy tickets to MizFest, go to MizFest.com. That's M-I-S-Fest.com. Tulsa Talks is a Langdon Publishing production recorded right here in beautiful downtown Tulsa, Oklahoma.